On the next Jazz United podcast, John Coltrane, A Love Supreme, live in Seattle. Nate and I dive into this truly historic recording. Listen and subscribe to Jazz United wherever you get your podcasts, or check us out at wbgo.org. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to The Checkout. It's a podcast. Hopefully you're listening to it. Hopefully you're subscribed. All of our shows archived on our homepage at checkoutjazz.org and produced at WBGO Studios. I'm Simon Rentner. I'm so happy to catch up with this guy. We've seen his trajectory since 2017. Uh, one of the incredible things about listening to the drummer Nate Smith is hearing the in-betweenness of his music. Uh, he's just so elegantly able to fuse styles uh, in his compositions and his playing. Now, with his second installment, Kinfolk 2, Nate Smith's biopic continues. <laughs> Episode 2. Episode 2, Season 2, baby. We're in Season 2. <laughs> this is the Matrix Reloaded, baby. This is, this is it. You know? We're gonna meet the we're gonna meet the French dude in this one. <laughs> <laughs> That's Kokai, right? He's yeah, definitely yeah, the Kokai, French he's dude. The, I forget the character's name. The, um, what the Mangevillian? What was his name? I forget. I, I'm mispronouncing it. But but he, yeah, we're gonna we're meeting a whole lot more characters in this one. A really obvious thing about being a drummer plus composer like yourself is that you have the blankest of palettes to begin with. Yep. The drums create an environment, you know? So it's like, what kind of environment do I want to build first? And then who would sound good here? You mentioned Kokai with that. Like, here's an odd meter funk groove, but it also has this kind of hip hop thing to it, sonically. Who's the only guy I can call for that? Who can really navigate it and knock it out of the park? I didn't want to get to Square Wheel right away because I, I almost feel like it's yeah. the opus of the record. It's just like, my head explodes every time I hear that tune. But let's just get to it. Let's, <laughs> let's get into it. <laughs> let's get into it. <laughs> Dig it. Wise kid, find the feeling, don't give. You will find the... Out of table where the crew converge, we write the song hook, line, and verse. We weave the basket out where the church. I'm a oldest wall to the bell, sing first, thirst traps, and first grab who, who, who's last week, fit the bars and the staff. Wise kid, find the fear, don't give, you will find the meaning. Wise kid, find the feeling, don't give. Perceive when the renegade. 
This is a really involved, specific drum pattern. Yeah. So, what was the process that it takes to create a beat like this? I was thinking about this mixed meter, four, four plus seven, eight, and just kind of, I've been sort of humming different patterns in my mind that kind of felt good, felt funky. And so I've been like, just, you know, pacing around my apartment with my voice memo, just like sing, singing into it, singing these different patterns. And so one of the patterns just kind of stuck and I thought to myself about displacing the rhythm, changing the clave the second time around, just doing, putting little stuff into it to keep it from getting too, you know, loopy or too like repetitive. Sitting at the piano and finding the chords, it started with a different bass line, I changed it, you know, just wanted to find something that felt like it could be a hip hop sample that was put on top of this odd meter groove. The melody of the horn line was actually the first thing that came to me. Uh. That was actually the first thing that I was singing over and over. And I was like, okay, so let's put the drum beat with this. And oh, okay, this kind of works. It kind of sounds like something. And I'm always thinking about what the cats are gonna sound like playing on it when I'm making it. Fema's gonna sound good on this bass line, man. And Jaleel, I mean, Jaleel's gonna crush this, like playing this odd meter, you know, kind of doing his rhythmic thing with it. Square Wheel with the remarkable Kokai. I just want to read a few of these lyrics because yeah. they pass you by pretty quickly. Catching the side eyes of the flyest, I guess, I finesse. Jocks and they straps, nerds and they labs, fly mm -hmm. shotties, asymmetric, intact. Who dat mm -hmm. is me? I am who these kids see I flam. Yep, yep. It's crazy, right? Were you a wise kid growing up in Chesapeake, Virginia? I think so. I think I became wise. I think um, when I went to Gokai with the, the track, I said, man, I want you to just write me a, a set the scene of a kid in the lunchroom feeling like kind of like the outcast in the lunchroom, right? Like just the, the, the squarest kid. Um, was that you? That was me. That I was believe me. it. I believe that it. That was me. That, that was me. I was, I was the one with the manuscript paper, the manuscript pad with my marching band drumsticks at the lunch table, you know, and that was my little place where I was like, okay, this is who I am. You know, this is, this is what I want to do, you know? Um, and, but, but in that same time, you're looking around and you're seeing, okay, well, there's the, you know, I know that this, 
this guy, he's like really good at basketball. He's on the team. And then I know, man, she's really pretty. She's like, like I have a huge crush on her, but that's not going to happen. And you know, what I mean? <laughs> you know, you know, so so you just you kind of come to terms with it, man. You're just like, all right, this this is where I'm at. This is this is my thing. So I just I went to Kokai with it and he he came back and he, he just crushed it. He, he set the scene so beautifully. You also take us straight to the band room. I understand you were yeah. a marching band nerd. Yes. Uh, let's, yeah, absolutely. Let's, I want I want some more Kokai. Love. Yeah. <laughs> Six times in the morning. K come true, never gone in. We gotta get the metaphors in morning. It's well, we're turning, and this is never boring. Lord, Lord, what I'm singing, how you do the K. When it got to coming true, and when he blew away, heavy metal to pedal, metal to settle it. K, he coming here, I say I'm all up in the sediment. Uh, straight, straight up off the train, M, M to the brain, brain, this is what I'm saying, saying, Lord, Lord, when I'm off and off and praying, genuflecting, I'm reflecting what he off and gon' say, say, Nate sent me the kite, yo, for rich man, this is how we gotta do it, I'm a rich man, straight from Columbia to district, no wonder, uh, and this is how I'm stepping when I'm walking over thunder, uh, uh, spinning wheels like a red to four, this is what they doing when they come and ask you to four, this is what he said to four, when I'm gone to Betty four, when it's quality in it, when he started, started to win it, or, or, or the major, major win, he got the pager, pager coming through him in the sky, the sky, the sky, the scraper, scraper, papers and papers when you gotta hit it off and you gotta hit it off, really doesn't matter when it go into the saw, really gotta play it when a game like golf, uh, maybe that's salty, maybe sweet, I love it when it's on the upbeat, maybe, maybe play the pick up, hiccup, when you set it, stick up, this is how they gotta do it, get it, it up, it up, yeah, yeah, I guess we doing this again, hey man, now how we making all these wheels they spin, we got a square wheel, guess we square rooted, and I'm often rooted when I'm getting high, he's often rooted, Lord. <laughs> Band room freestyle, I mean... Yeah. If this doesn't prove the point of like, what's the difference between jazz and hip hop? I don't know what yeah. can. I mean, straight up, yeah. what the? Straight up. straight up. The process for that. So we were in the studio. We played our thing. The engineer left the tape, the, the Pro Tools running, and he had looped the, he was doing an edit. So he had looped that last hit that the band played. And he just kept looping it. And it, it, it felt like a downbeat. Like it was just bump and it just played again. Bump, and then three times around, me and Kokai looked at each other like, wait a minute. And so I told the engineer to loop it, just keep keep it looping. We went out to the to the recording room and we just cut the freestyle right there. And and it's actually much longer than what ended up I ended up using. Like I think he I'm gonna probably put out an alternate version where we get into the there's like another minute of of him just like doing it. And it, he is just eating it alive. And and the thing I love about it is you know, there's this line between rapping and singing that Kokai kind of sort of straddles. So he's, you know, he's in a key when he's doing it. So when I, when I added the bass line and stuff later, that was actually in the key he was singing in or kind of vocalizing it, you know? Um, so it's just, it's just so incredible, man, that, you know, I think when you start talking about phrasing and swing and time and... Well, and, and the call and response in this yes, tune especially. yes. That was all improvised. Like we're, we're that that is actually a true freestyle moment, and it's also the moment of like absolute giddiness on the record. Like it's just you know, joy, you know. It's like oh, uh, we're doing it. You know what I mean? It's really cool. You, you found the, it's like you won the f-ing lottery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We found it, man. We found this. We found the scratch off. You know, this is the one. This is the one, man. Powerball. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it's crazy. I love this that you, like I said earlier, you're you're creating an album into a like ten part biopic, and like every song is like a scene from your awkward days. It's not like yes. your childhood. This is like the weird, this all the, the weird stuff. stuff. Oh god, <laughs> oh god, it's. It's, it's yeah. This was the toughest time. Your teenager years, are, your teenage years are hard, man. So I, I did a little, you know, just research about Chesapeake, uh, Virginia. Yeah. Not close to DC. Not not as close no. to DC as I would have expected. Yeah. Uh, yeah. About thirty percent black, sixty mm-hmm. percent white. That obviously puts you at a clear minority in the South. Yeah. But yes. in this sort of Gen X. Mm-hmm. transitory time yes. uh, where genres are starting to not mean something. Yeah. You kind of can cross the line. Like yep. you probably weren't brave enough to wear a Metallica t-shirt in high school. I did not, but I would wear a living color. Well, that's we'll, what I mean. Well, the, we'll, well you could, that, yeah. well, that makes sense, right? Yeah. Right. Right. That's what right. I mean. You couldn't get like, like the black kids today can wear a Metallica shirt in high school, and and it's no, like nobody cares. Nobody oh, cares. Just, yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah. then it would you would probably break people's you know brains or brains. something. Brains <laughs> explode. And, and, <laughs> yeah, you know it's it's funny, man. My school was pretty fairly integrated. You know, it was like a, it, it it didn't feel like a white school with a, a few black students. There was a lot of black and brown kids, a lot of black and brown kids in my school. And I think the, the, the main thing I sort of kind of ran into at the time, you know, the intersection of pop culture and race and, and thing and, and a lot of firsts that were happening during the time, you know, 80s, this is the era of Oprah and it's the era of Spike Lee and it's the era of Michael Jordan and it's the era of, it's like there's this rising of a black. Great sort of black excellence. Excellence, absolutely. And on the other hand, it's also the... And the, becoming the mainstreamed in a way like we've never seen it before. We like, have never seen it before. This is the Michael Jackson decade. You know, exactly. this is... So you, you see that. And then on the other hand, you see the emergence of BET. And you see, you know, MTV starts to get more integrated under pressure from, you know, they start to get more integrated. They're showing Michael Jackson. They're showing Prince. Um, and so you start to see this thing happening where black people, black culture is a lot more visible um, to, to sort of the mainstream, as you said, you know? Um, so that has an enormous impact on, on me as a young black kid growing up in Chesapeake. It's like, okay, well, there's a big world out here. There's a big, huge world of art and music outside of my relatively small town. So how do I get there? I I can't talk enough about the impact that Living Color had on me during that time. Mm. Um, that was that was that was big. Living Color was a real revelation for me. And what was the um, song that you just played the, out? The first oh man, the first one was so. My story with Living Color begins with my best friend Lloyd Barnett, who I'm sure he's going to freak out when he hears this, but he uh, he comes over to my house and he has this homemade cassette. Right? He says, dude, you have to listen to this right now. Right? And I'm like, and he's like breathlessly like, man, you should hear this. And so I take it, I put it, I take it to the bedroom, I put it on in my boombox, and cult of personality play. Look in my eyes, what do you see? The cult of personality. 
in the first 30 seconds of that song, it's just like, what am I listening to? I was excited. I was scared. I was thrilled. It was like, what am I listening? What is this? So, you know, I didn't have, in my house, there wasn't a lot of black rock and roll. Yeah, I think the only black dude I'd ever seen with a guitar besides Prince was probably George Benson. Nowhere close to this. Not nowhere close to this. As great as he is, it's, it's not we even... We love George close. Benson. All we love George respect. Benson. This is different. This is, you know, and so I didn't know much about Jimi Hendrix. I didn't know anything about, you know, Muddy Waters. I didn't know, you know, Bo Diddley. I didn't know this history, you know. So, and all the stuff that leads to Prince eventually. And first of all, it just took me like a week of just listening to the entire album on repeat. Just listen, just like, what are they doing? There's mixed meters. There's there's metric modulation. They're they're doing these things with the beat. They're these incredible fills that Will Calhoun is playing. Like, what? <laughs> it's just it was too much. It was too much. So then I saw a picture of them and it's four black dudes who looked like me. And I was like, what? I did not expect it. I did not expect it. And so it just kind of opened up a whole portal. I became obsessed with Living Color. I was freebasing Living Color. I was so obsessed with it. I was, <laughs> you know what I mean? If I could have smoked it, I would have smoked it, you know? But I, I just kind of went down that, that rabbit hole and I, I found, you know, all of their like um, documentary stuff and like, behind the scenes and every interview they gave. I just wanted to know as much as I could about how they were forming these ideas, you know, where, where all this music was coming from. And then you get to actually make a tune with Vernon Reed, Rambo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's up? Come on, man. That's like <laughs> 17. That's like 15-year-old me freaking out. So my connection to Vernon Reed begins with Alma Watt, who, is, who sings in Kinfolk, right? Her father was a great percussionist. He's passed away now. He was a member of the Black Rock Coalition, and so he knew Vernon. They were friends, you know? We played a show at Rockwood, and Vernon was playing in the band after him. And so Vernon's setting up, and Alma says, I'm gonna introduce you to Vernon. I was like, oh, oh okay. And immediately, you know, it, I'm like, I'm 16 years old again. You know, I'm like, oh, okay. So I go over and I shake his hand, Mr. Reed, um, Alma clowns me to this day about this story because I was I was fanboying. I really was, you know. Mr. Reed, um, it's just a uh, pleasure, you know. And he was very nice. Oh, man, nice to meet you, man. Good to meet you. Oh, yeah, cool, you know. And that was 2018, I think. So, so you know, the last couple years happened. Everything is, you know, the world shuts down. We do, we go into the studio and we do the, the band track for Rambo. This is June of 2019. And I'm sitting on it, I'm like... I've got to ask Vernon to play on it. So I hit his management up. We started talking a little. I sent him the tracks. He went complete sonic ambience. 
architect Vernon like just added a universe of sound to the record. And um, I sent he got I got the Pro Tools files back from him and I dropped him in. I was like, man, I'm on a record with Vernon Reed, dude. Like, this is bananas. <laughs> Still kind of freaking out just retelling like I, I still i'm still i'm still bugging retelling this because it's just like come on man come on oh man nate smith has arrived all right so <laughs> i feel like we have to talk about fishbone and 24 7 spies oh my god yes <laughs> we, we most definitely do we most definitely must talk about fishbone we most we must um First of all, uh, one of the greatest drummers, one of the greatest living drummers. 
Philip Fish Fisher is his name. That's very awkward. It does not roll off the tongue. I know, it does. So that's why everybody <laughs> just calls him Fish. <laughs> just calls him Fish. And, and he always plays with his back to the audience. I've only seen them live once. Um, and his back. Miles Davis style. Miles Davis style. But I mean, I mean, just an incredible drummer. Like, so funky, so powerful. Um, just amazing. So, um, and also just one of the greatest front men, Angelo Moore, who, who sings and plays saxophone, you know. Um, it's, it's just unreal. An, an incredibly underrated band. public school system it was as I'm sure it was for you in high school super segregated for no yeah. for no damn reason right mm -hmm. like the white kids hung out with the white kids at least in my high school you yeah. know Asians hung out with the Asians like you know etc cetera, etc cetera. it felt like our cultural identities uh, were in sort of in parallel with this right mm -hmm. it did mm -hmm. feel dangerous playing heavy metal with my black friends because mm -hmm. it was just weird because it didn't mm -hmm. feel like it was accepted then I guess at, yeah. as a young kid yeah yeah I mean all the more reason why um you know I think about what living color represents not only just the band but just this idea that you know they were on tour with anthrax they were they were you know on tour with the stones so they were in these kind of like majority white spaces, but they were still kind of being themselves and playing their music, you know? And I, I think about like what that must have been like for them too. I, you know, I've, I haven't had a chance to talk with Vernon that much about it, but having read some of his interviews and having, you know, I'm just thinking about what that must have been like to be on the bill with one of the biggest rock band in the world, you know, and coming out and it's like, okay, well, are these 50,000 people or however many are they at all interested in these four black guys playing hard rock metal you know are they interested in that or is it more about okay we're just kind of like you know letting the people fill up the stadium before the stones come out you know what I mean um and in terms of to answer your question about the the segregation I mean I feel like for me the marching band was the place where I was like the black kid surrounded by white kids in my marching band, you know? Um, which is not to say that the marching band wasn't integrated, but it was definitely like, you know, a, a majority white space. And our band was like a core style band. We weren't like a dancing, like kind of black marching band. We played core style stuff and it was kind of more, you know, uh, maybe leaning more classical or orchestral in the arrangements. And I was in a position of leadership in my high school band too. So I was like, the black kid in the drum line, but also the, the captain of the drum line, you know? So there was, you know, sometimes the 
maybe the kids might want might want might not want to take a an order from me, you know, or might not want to listen to what I have to say, or you know, um, you know. So I I I learned quite a bit from those experiences, but um, you kind of find out over time that you know the people who were kind of into you and open to the experience of, of being with you, someone different, you find those people over time, you know, they'll, they're the ones that, you know, yeah, we will we'll come, come over to the house, hang out with that, you know, meet my folks, you know, this, you get this, this, the sense that, okay, well, maybe it's not as segregated outside of the, the social order of school as it is inside the, in the hallways. Just to get super philosophical on this, you're a teenager, so you're, in a sense, discerning or coming to the realization of your own tastes and predilections and trying to find yourself because you don't really know who you are. Yet you can immediately identify like, I like this, I like that, right? Yes. Yes. And then, but oftentimes in, in your process of liking this and that, you don't know if you're being blinded just by your surroundings, right? Your peers, right. influences, yeah. you're, you're, you're excited about the excitement from your friend liking this. Yeah. Do, do yeah. I really like this music? Yes. Or, or yeah. is, is this just, you know? So yeah. I, I can only imagine, like, for you, for instance, being in this marching band, who am I in this? There's a lot of identity stuff, you know, that happens in your teenage years you're trying to figure out who you are you know and where you belong and if you're the black kid surrounded by you know a bunch of white kids and you like the same music they like you like the you know it's easy for the black kids to look at you and say oh man i don't i don't know about this i don't know about this you know they're you know for all of the the weirdness that you can encounter as the the sole black person in a, in an all white there's also some some policing of blackness that some of your your black friends and family can do too and you know it's not really even limited to to rock i'm sorry it's it's jazz as well you know there's there are some black folks who you know you you can be around them and these are educated affluent black folks and you can put on Thelonious Monk and they'll listen to it and be like, you know, I mean, this is okay, but what? This is a little weird, right? This is a little strange. There's this, um, this sort of measuring stick of is how black is this? You know what I mean? If it's weird, interesting. I grew up kind of in a smooth jazz house, you know. Before it was smooth jazz, it was like you know this the music that kind of went down easy, you know. So there may have been times when we would had conversations about Miles. George Davis. Benson, we love you. We love George Benson. We love George Benson. And George Benson's a genius. But it's like on the flip side of that, like, 
you know, if I come in the house with, you know, a weather report record or if I come in the house with, you know, um, if something leave like an electric miles record, there might be a little pushback. Like, what is this? It's got these elements of like, you know, rock. It's got this kind of psychedelic undertone. It's got this other stuff. I don't know. That's that. It's a little bit less comfortable to listen to. It's a little bit left of the center, you know. So um, I, I ran into both of that. I kind of I kind of existed in both of those worlds as a, as a teenager. I remember there was uh, Living Color was playing on Saturday Night Live. The whole family was in the room watching it. I, it was either Saturday Night Live or Arsenio, one of the two. And so we were all sitting around watching it. And I just, <laughs> I just remember being enthralled like just like eyes wide open just wrapped into this music right and looking back and just seeing my <laughs> my dad my my older brother and their expressions were just like what is this <laughs> what is this and and it was it was dangerous you know i also kind of grew up in a religious house too my mom was was super religious and so at the time, you know, there was this there was this thing around hard rock and metal and it was like the devil's music and it had, you know, this, you know, right. worship the devil and that. so and so I know, I know, and she's never admitted to this, but I know that it it might have scared my mom that I was so into this incredibly loud guitar distorted, you know. Um but I think one thing to my mother's credit, one thing when when she saw uh, she saw Living Color perform live, and they did a song about, uh, they have a song called Open Letter to a Landlord. It's about um, the people getting kicked out of their homes and poor people getting displaced. And she saw that there was a political message, a political component to what they were doing. Now you can tear a building down, but you can't erase a memory. I think that kind of sort of relaxed her, her stance on it a little bit um but that was that was i do specifically vividly remember that um arsenio arsenio performance watching that with my then my dad and my brothers and, and arsenio's like, like a safe space for your family right and, yeah, so, arsenio, and so it's like he, yeah he's he's the black late night talk show guy you know what i mean he's the guy like do we, we can go to arsenio i mean arsenio played he had like Real jazz, straight ahead jazz on his show too. Arsenio was great. I think he was incredible. Terry Lynn Carrington, shout out to. Him. Oh man, Terry Lynn, shout out to Terry Lynn. She was the the phenom, you know, like of that of that band. But yeah, you know, and, and I saw Dizzy Gillespie on Arsenio. Dizzy Gillespie and John Faddis. I think they played a duet on it. I remember seeing that. But then he also had Living Color, you know, like you know, and so I just kind of remember watching it and just seeing the reaction of the people in the room and. You know, and even playing it for some of my black friends at school, they'd be like, uh, okay, this is cool, but this I is too far. Play. You can't, this you, is too you're far. You're not supposed to like this. You're not supposed to like, I, I want to hear, I, this is nice, but can you put the Bobby Brown record back on, please? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like my, you know, my, my high school girlfriend. Tenderoni. Tenderoni, man. I mean, come on. My high school girlfriend doesn't want to hear you know, Desperate People by Living Color. We're not, that's not... She doesn't want to ride around in the car listening to that, you know?
not to like turn it on like necessarily a somber note because this mm -hmm. this is so joyful but your backstory behind street lamp mm -hmm. um definitely is is haunting to say the least so yeah the street lamp rule is just an extension of this idea that the house is the safe space right if you're in the street no matter you know you can be in the street in broad daylight and still you know meet misfortune but when it gets dark and that street lamp comes on you know it kind of kind of goes back to this kind of sundown town idea that in some places black folks were not safe out after dark and so there's this idea as a young boy that yeah you can only play so much there's only so much time for to play but you always kind of have to be on your guard like always be watching and be looking out for and watch that that sun set and watch that street lamp come on because that's when you need to be back in the house back in this safe space where not only I know what you're doing but I also know who's not here you know I know that you're safe here that to me is kind of what the 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 song hopefully the the verse section kind of gives you this sense of play and then this refrain that comes back it's like okay just don't forget keep coming back keep coming back to this refrain of come home when it's safe
reflecting on your teenage years, you remember scenes in your early development that yeah. are on their face value inconsequential. Right. Absolutely meaningless. Right. But for whatever reason, that's right. Because you're so precocious and your brain is this giant sponge. Yeah. You just like soak in the moment and the moment yeah. is larger than your existence. I hadn't I didn't fly until I didn't I didn't I wasn't on an airplane until maybe I was about maybe 12, 13 years old. I'd never flown. And I always used to think to myself, man, where is everybody going? I would I would kind of see, you know, see the see the plane, see flying. I'd be like, man, where where is everybody? I mean, I what what is it like to be like, you know, jet setting? It looks really glamorous. When you're a twelve year old kid in Chesapeake, it's like, you know, everything looks glamorous, you know. I'm gonna get on a flight and go here and do a thing and I'm gonna get get on a flight, come back, and then you know, and it's like you think, oh man, this is you know, this is the life. And I remember that kind of idea of, you know, I want to be up there. I want to be on that flight going somewhere, you know, going somewhere else to do something, you know. Um, we, I talked a little bit. I don't know if I mentioned the, the Sting documentary, Bring on the Night, this no, with, with Branford, Kenny Kirkland, Daryl Jones, yes. Omar Hakeem. Incredible. Omar Hakeem. Right. But they were rehearsing in Paris. Like the whole thing is them rehearsing in a castle in Paris, right? And they're all playing great. They're all dressed great. They're all sharp, shades, looking cool. And I'm looking at that and I'm like, yo, how do I get there? Like, how do I get to that? You know, that to me, that's the bird. That's the dream. It's like, man, how do I get to that thing? Don't stop dreaming, y'all. Yeah. Like, ever. Ever, always keep ever. always keep that and yeah. always aim for the stars absolutely dream big dream big and then look up that's the that's the other thing is like keep looking up it's easy to get bogged when you're you know but just keep looking up you know and that's when yeah. i saw you on youtube playing with wolfpack with like 50 million views <laughs> right <laughs> shout out to my fearless flyers brothers thank you guys for that opportunity <laughs> Killing, killing. <laughs> Nate Smith, thank you so much. That was thank fun. You, man. I appreciate you, Simon. Thank you, brother.
Nate Smith, Kinfolk 2, See the Birds. Are you looking up into the clouds? I certainly am, especially when I'm listening to this tune. Altitude featuring the vocalist Michael Mayo and the vibraphonist Joel Ross. We hope you enjoyed the show and we hope you are subscribed to the podcast on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. If you are, why don't you please give us a kind review? That would be amazing. Five stars. And also make sure to check out all of our other podcasts produced at WBGO Studios. We have a new homepage for that at WBGO.org. You can also follow us on social media at Checkout Jazz. That's our Twitter handle. You can find me on Instagram. The Checkout is a production of WBGO Studios. I'm Simon Rettner. Thanks for checking us out. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org studios.